You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. The modern age of investigative crime solving came to the United States via the railing of a Chicago home on September 19, 1910. The house and its railing were located in the Southside neighborhood of Beverly, and both were owned by a Pullman Railroad clerk named Clarence Hiller. There'd been a recent rash of burglaries in the area, so Hiller, his wife, and daughter were probably already on edge, even before the former awoke to the screams of the latter. He jumped out of bed and straight into a burglar on the second floor landing. They struggled there for a moment before tumbling in a rough, jagged tangle down the hardwood stairs. At the bottom, from the depths of the prone and writhing melee, Clarence's daughter Clarice heard three shots. The burglar rose to his feet and ran out the front door. Clarence, in contrast, didn't rise at all. A recent parolee named Thomas Jennings was found four blocks away. He wore a torn and bloody coat and carried a still warm revolver. But the coup de grace against Thomas Jennings was back on the railing. He had entered the Hiller house via a window on the porch and had found his way to the porch via the railing. The recently painted railing. Six years before, St. Louis had held the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, better known as the 1904 World's Fair. We already talked about the St. Louis Fair last season in Run For Your Life, our episode on the disastrous 1904 Olympic Marathon. As a refresher, the 1904 World's Fair was a chaotic and almost impressively racist celebration, which included a large-scale recreation of the major battles of South Africa's recently completed Boer War, a so-called parade of human evolution, which is exactly as abominable as it sounds. Some say the fair also introduced Americans to a variety of products, including hamburgers, hot dogs, ice cream cones, and peanut butter, but each and every one of those things likely already existed before 1904. Sorry, St. Louis. One thing that the fair can lay claim to is the introduction of a new forensic technique to the United States. Amid all the fried snacks and monuments to white supremacy, Scotland Yard had an exhibit of their own, which they showed off not only to the public, but to American police forces from around the nation. Fingerprinting. The potential of fingerprints to identify individuals was first recognized long ago, but just how long ago and where and how is muddy. There are references to taking fingerprints from suspected criminals as early as Hammurabi's Code in 1750 BC, but what precisely was done with these fingerprints in ancient Babylon and what value the ancient Babylonians understood them to have is unclear. In China, fingerprints were being taken as parts of contracts at least as early as the 9th century AD, but whether anyone thought to use them for criminal investigation is somewhere between disputed and improbable. In the 1850s, Sir William Herschel started using full palm prints for contract law in a similar fashion while working as a British officer in the Indian Civil Service in India. 
When he returned to England in 1881, he wrote a letter to the journal Nature, detailing how he had come to use a fingerprint as a signature and suggesting their possible value in forensics. But he'd been beaten to the punch by Henry Falds, a Scottish surgeon who traveled to Japan in 1873 to become a missionary. While there, he also worked on some archaeological digs, during which he noticed that some ancient Japanese sculptors had signed their work with their thumbprints. From this, he came up with the idea of using fingerprints to catch criminals, and he also wrote to the journal Nature, detailing his thoughts of how to do so. In 1880, just a scant few months before Herschel. Over the next 37 years, Falds and Herschel fought openly in the press over which of them had come up with the idea until Herschel finally conceded defeat, practically on his deathbed. And yet, Herschel tended to get the popular credit because of his colleague, Sir Francis Galton. Galton is the dictionary definition of the phrase mixed bag. A cousin to Charles Darwin, Galton's interests and contributions to science were wide and deep. He pretty well discovered heritability after Gregor Mendel was ignored and knocked both Lamarckism and his cousin's pangenesis theories right in the mouth. In statistics, he conceived of and worked out a measure for what we now call the standard deviation, normal distribution, regression towards the mean, and the whole idea of statistical correlation. He laid the groundwork for the field of differential psychology, differential hearing tests, the lexical hypothesis of personality, just a whole lot of stuff. Not all of it so good. Galton was a level of elitist that frankly seems like it must have been exhausting, and a racist of a whole different strata than even his fellow 19th century white academics. He wasn't just a supporter of eugenics, he coined the word and spent his golden years writing a novel about a grand utopia reached by selectively breeding smarter, stronger, and more moral humans while sterilizing anyone found lacking in those areas, a position he also advocated for in several nonfiction books and essays. Oh, and also, he systematized fingerprint analysis. Before sending his letter to Nature, Henry Folds had written Charles Darwin, asking for his help on the fingerprint project. Darwin didn't have the time nor inclination, so he sent Fald's idea onto his eugenicist cousin, who, probably by accident, ignored Fald's request and instead took up work on fingerprints with Herschel. Galton was already collecting measurements of thousands of people from around the world in order to further his argument for racial superiority. What a peach, this guy! So he began also collecting fingerprints, too. In his investigation of nearly 8,000 subjects, Galton not only echoed earlier conclusions that fingerprints were unique, but named eight signature shapes that could be mapped to cross-check prints against one another. Galton's system of arches, loops, and whirls made its way to Scotland Yard in 1901, then through Scotland Yard to St. Louis in 1904, and from St. Louis to the railing outside Clarence Hiller's porch window on September 9th, 1910, upon which Thomas Jennings, bloody, injured, and carrying the recently fired revolver, had left a set of prints. It was a slam dunk, except that the prosecution had to somehow convey to the jury that this was important, that prints were unique, and that the ones on the railing belonged to Thomas Jennings. And this is the thing that makes People v. Jennings really important. Being the first case to use fingerprint evidence in court is interesting, it's noteworthy. But the fingerprints on their own would mean nothing to the jury. How could they know whether the prints on the railing were the same as the ones police had inked from Jennings? 
And even if they could tell that, how would they know what that meant? Neither of those things were immediately and facially evident to any old Joe Schmo in the jury box. To interpret Jennings' prints required someone more, an expert witness. The DA brought in four of them, and throughout the initial trial, Jennings' counsel objected to each of these supposed experts. After he was convicted, they appealed on the grounds that the fingerprints shouldn't have been admitted. His case went all the way up the line to the Illinois Supreme Court, who found, after arguments from both sides, that fingerprints were reliable evidence, and the experts furnished by the state offered admissible testimony. That is really the moment at which things changed. I love a good murder mystery, and you probably do too. Think of all the movies and books and plays and TV shows, my God, the TV shows, that center around figuring out who done it. Now, I think one of the reasons these sorts of stories are so seductive is that they represent the place where our understanding of truth really gets tested. There are big questions of epistemology that we grapple with in the abstract all the time. How do we know what we think we know? In the courtroom, the rubber meets the road. And so, we can infer a good deal of a society's values and beliefs from how it tries accused criminals. In Europe's dark ages, people decided guilt or innocence based on ordeals, dropping defendants in water or walking them across fire, because they believed that the truth was only decipherable by God and that he would intercede on behalf of justice. Trial by combat tells us a lot about how Germanic and English peoples conflated justice with strength. Even the folklore belief in cruentation, that a body bleeds in the presence of its killer, tells us about people who believed that right would triumph in the end, that the unjustly struck down would get the last laugh. Today, we believe that science, empiricism, and expertise can lead us to truth. And so it is only natural that our courtrooms are stuffed with ballistics analysts and blood spatter analysts and arson investigators and a, a host of other professional experts whom we ask to divine the guilty from the innocent, just as we once asked of corpses, swords, and God himself. The only difference is that now we get it right. Right? This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. This is episode two of a three-part series on forensics. Last episode, we looked at how crimes were adjudicated in the past, through ordeals, trials by combat, and cruentation. On the next episode, we'll look at the modern tools of crime solving, and why most of them are closer to the old stuff than we would like to think. But right now, we're sort of bridging the gap. We're talking not about the science or pseudoscience of forensics itself, but how it got into the courts in the first place. Today's episode, How to Solve a Murder, Part 2. In the 1720s, the town of Wells Next to the Sea on the North Norfolk coast of England began to notice a problem. Their harbor was becoming clogged up with silt and gunk. The whole county depended on Wells Harbor for its livelihood. The fishermen and merchant marines, well, obviously, but also the farmers and craftsmen whose products had to be floated in and out. As the harbor deteriorated, they began having instead to march their grain and goods overland through the muck at the far ends of what once was the water. The situation was desperate, 
and so the whole town chipped in to finance the building of a couple of artificial sluices, sliding gates, that they hoped could be used to scour the floor of the harbor and keep the problem from worsening. But it didn't work, and by 1780, the inhabitants of wells next to the sea were getting frantic. In a last-ditch effort to save their harbor, they decided to go right to the source of the problem, Sir Martin Brown Folks. Martin Folks was a baronet and a landlord who controlled much of the property around Wells Next to the Sea, including a plum slice of real estate smack dab on the harbor, where his father had built some embankments in the 1720s, right around the time people started noticing the harbor going to pot. So, the harbor's board of commissioners sued Sir Martin Brown Folks and asked a jury to find his embankments the cause of the harbor's woes and to have them removed. The trial was held over the course of two days in August of 1781. On the first day, the commissioners made their case through a series of witnesses, longshoremen, pilots, captains, bosuns, and every other manner of people who worked the harbor. Each of them testified that the problem with the harbor began after the building of folks' embankments. They further testified that in their expert beliefs, one was responsible for the other. The next day, Sir Folk's lawyers got their turn. They called only one witness, Robert Milne. Robert Milne didn't have any experience with ships or shipping. He didn't really have any experience with harbors when it came right down to it, certainly not the harbor at Wells Next to the Sea, which he had only seen for the first time a couple of days before. No, Robert Milne was a totally new kind of witness, like nothing courts had seen before. Folks brought Milne in from London, where he worked primarily as an architect. He first drew attention when he won a commission to build a third bridge over the Thames, the Blackfriars Bridge, which still stands today after some renovations. After that, he rose in prominence, becoming a fellow at the Royal Society and helping form the Society of Civil Engineers, the first engineering society in the world. When Milne arrived at Wells Next to the Sea, he took a look around the deteriorating harbor and at Folks' embankments and quickly concluded that the two had nothing to do with one another. There was no way that the embankments were negatively impacting the harbor, he testified. Instead, the problems were due to silt and mud being swept down the nearby river estuaries, which were then swept up along the coast of Norfolk by tides and winds. It may have seemed to the commission's witnesses that the harbor had started falling apart after folks' embankments were built, but that was just a trick of the senses. In fact, the harbor had been slowly filling up for some unknown geological period of time, and tearing down folks' seawalls would do nothing to stop that process. The commission's lawyers were totally blindsided. They had no idea what to do about Milne. They lost the case and quickly appealed on the ground that, quote, the defendants were surprised by the doctrine and reasoning of Mr. Milne. The King's Bench allowed the appeal to go forward, saying that if Folks's case was going to rest on this newfangled science jazz, it was only fair that the commission should get an opportunity to answer with its own. On the second go-round, the commission brought in a team of scientific experts of their own to combat the testimony of Robert Milne. Four engineers. John Grundy, who specialized in river navigation, Thomas Hogard, who specialized in drainage, Joseph Nichols, who worked on the Thames Navigation Commission, and Joseph Hodgkinson, vice president of the Society of Civil Engineers, which Milne had co-founded. An impressive roster, for sure. But folks' side wasn't resting on its laurels. They added only one witness, 
but he was a real heavyweight. John Smeaton. Smeaton wasn't just the other co-founder of the Society of Civil Engineering. He had coined the term civil engineering. He was the absolute English authority on harbors, having helped design and build some 40 of them by the time of the trial, in addition to bridges and canals. He did a lot of work on water wheels and windmills too, not just building them, but nailing down the physics which make them work, which led directly to the Smeaton coefficient, which the Wright brothers used to figure out how to fly. But Smeaton was most famous for building the Eddystone Lighthouse off the coast of Plymouth. Well, actually, Smeaton built the third Eddystone Lighthouse, or, well, technically the fourth Eddystone Lighthouse, and you wouldn't believe how hard I'm working here to not spend the next half hour talking about the Eddystone Lighthouses. Well, maybe I... No. No. Mark, control yourself. Deep breath. The only things I need to say at this moment about Smeaton's Eddystone Lighthouse is that it was the first to take the shape of virtually all those to come, with a wide base gradually thinning towards the top, and that to construct it, Smeaton rediscovered for the first time since the fall of the Roman Empire the use of hydraulic lime, or what we'd now generically call concrete. Too long didn't read? John Smeaton was an intimidating witness. And while Robert Milne had expanded the bounds of what an expert witness could be in the first trial, Smeaton's report went to a whole different level. He disputed the hypothesis that folks' embankments were responsible for the harbor's deterioration and agreed with Milne's testimony that the silt was being carried in by the river estuaries and tides. But that was just the beginning. Smeaton concerned himself with the entire history of the harbor from time immemorial. In his expert opinion, Wells Next the Sea once stood upon a bare sandy coast with no harbor at all. But over the course of thousands or even tens of thousands of years, silt from the estuaries carried on the tides raised the height of the sand and eventually created gullies of tidal water. The sand kept getting higher and the tide pools and gullies kept getting deeper until the harbor the people of Wells depended on was formed. But that same force never stopped and the harbor had always been continuously changing under the forces of the silt and tides. As Smeaton put it, the progressional operation of nature, which originally formed the harbor of wells and brought it to maturity, has also occasioned it to grow more and more into a state of decay, and will finally close it up and convert it into a firm ground, fit for arable purpose, and those of pasturage, the very spot where ships have rowed at anchor. In advance of the second trial, Smeaton's report was furnished to the commission's side, so that this time, they would have time to compose a counter-argument. When Folks' attorney called Smeaton to the stand, the commission unleashed their strategy. They objected. George Hardinge, barrister for the harbor, argued that the court should disallow Smeaton from testifying, since his report, quote, was a matter of opinion which could be no foundation for the verdict of the jury, which was to be built entirely on facts and not on opinions. When they called sailors and longshoremen to testify, they were asking them as experts to relay their observations that the harbor had begun changing with the completion of the embankments. Hardinge had gone along with folks' calling Robert Milne because Milne's testimony, novel as it was, was still based upon his factual observations of silt being driven into the harbor via tides. But this? This was something altogether different. Smeaton was prepared to testify about things that he said had happened over the course of millennia. 
things invisible to the naked eye, things about which he had no direct experience. How could Smeaton speak so confidently about matters that he, by definition, had not observed? And how could the court, let alone the jury, know how to value this testimony? Was it fact, opinion, conjecture, speculation? How was anyone to say? The court sustained the objection and barred Smeaton from the witness stand. Without his testimony, Folks lost the case and was ordered to remove the embankments. Even without talking about the Eddystone Lighthouses, which again is taking every fiber of my restraint, this might be starting to feel like a confusingly long digression. Folks v. Chad, as the case is named, was not a criminal trial. Didn't I promise you guys some grisly murder scenes? Yeah, and, uh, and they are coming. But Folks v. Chad is important for reasons we're nearly on top of now. When the jury ruled against Folks, he immediately appealed on the grounds that Smeaton should have been allowed to testify. The request was then taken up by Lord Mansfield, Chief Justice of the King's Bench, who delivered a very long and very weighty decision. In essence, Lord Mansfield concluded not only that John Smeaton's testimony should have been allowed, but that, in fact, it was the only dependable type of testimony available. The only things that could be deduced by observation and experience alone were that folks had built an embankment and the harbor was in decline. Everything past that, on whether or what the relationship between those two facts were, was a matter of science. The mariners and longshoremen called to the stand didn't have the necessary tools to form a proper conclusion, and neither did the jury. Only an expert versed in engineering and in science could hope to discern the correct answer. And the court must necessarily rely on such experts to make the right decision. A third trial was issued, Smeaton was allowed to testify, and Folks won his case and was able to keep his embankments. We can draw a direct line from Folks v. Chad, Smeaton's testimony, and Lord Mansfield's decision straight through to People v. Jennings, the first American trial to include fingerprint analysis experts. Even though Folks v. Chad was a matter of English common law, Mansfield's gravitas and esteem as a jurist gave his words such weight that the general principle he laid down provided the bedrock for how to handle science in courts far beyond England. You may be asking, is that a good thing or... And if you are, good for you. Because that is the question. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. 
BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and much more. And since it's available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. Here's an astonishing fact. A new species of dinosaur is named nearly every week. And I Know Dino is the only podcast which covers every new dinosaur discovery. The largest dinosaur podcast, I Know Dino, covers the latest scientific discoveries and fun facts about dinosaurs and goes into deep dives into specific dinosaurs on each episode. Learn the answers to questions like, did T-Rex really have short, useless arms? And how close are the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park to our current understanding? And in the process, learn about other scientific fields, how mammals rose to prominence, how migration patterns of dinosaurs tell us about the history of continental drift, and how climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Each episode ends with a fun fact you can use to cover the awkward silence in your Zoom meetings, and I'll give you one for free now. We are closer in time to T-Rex right now than Stegosaurus ever was. Soak that freaky fact in, and then subscribe to I Know Dino today. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more, we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So far, this episode seems to be a history of everything going exceedingly well. From 250 years on, it's clear that Smeaton's theories on erosion and accretion were near bullseyes, and equally clear that Folks' embankments had nothing to do with the deterioration of Wells Harbor. It's also pretty certain that Thomas Jennings killed Clarence Hiller, and that his fingerprints helped put him rightfully in prison. Oh, except that's not what happened to Thomas Jennings. Never mind, we'll come back around to that later. What's perhaps most spot-on of all is the observation of Lord Mansfield, that sometimes science isn't just good evidence, but the only evidence. And experts, not just good witnesses, but the only witnesses that can be counted upon to determine the truth. Sometimes the courts have to trust science. 
Objection, Your Honor. Counsel says the courts should just sit back and listen to the experts, but then who and how are we to determine which experts to listen to and about what? Objection sustained. Ooh, Your Honor, I'm happy to go into that if you'd allow me another story. Objection. How many more of these droning, plodding monologues are we supposed to endure before counsel gets to the point? Defense makes a good point, Mr. Chrysler. This bench has noticed these shaggy dog stories of yours are becoming a trend. Used to be that episodes were 15 or 20 minutes. I could listen while I did the dishes. Nowadays, we're lucky to get a history of the Eddie Stone Lighthouse that doesn't exceed the one-hour mark. Actually, I'd love to... Relevance, Your Honor. Order! Order in this court, I say. I, I won't have any further digressions. Objection, Your Honor. On what grounds? Defense objects to this entire digression as well. If Mr. Chrysler wanted to have a metatheatrical framing device in this episode, he should have introduced it before the act break. The audience has no expectation for this scenelet, nor any notion of its rules, limits, or goals. I request an immediate mistrial. Request granted. This court is adjourned. I gotta admit, they make a lot of good points. This show should be shorter. But also, the introduction of scientific experts into court created a paradox. Lord Mansfield had astutely noted that sometimes courts would have to defer to experts. But when? And who was to determine what constituted an expert, if the whole point of calling one was that they had knowledge and discernment beyond the court? For that, Lord Mansfield had no clear answer, and neither did the Illinois Supreme Court when it ruled in favor of the fingerprint evidence against Jennings. Courts didn't know how to adjudicate scientific expertise, and there was no precedent to guide them. And when a precedent finally arrived, it caused its own problems. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Dr. Robert W. Brown was a private physician, president of the National Benefit Life Insurance Company, and a pillar of Washington, D.C.'s black community, its richest member. On the night of November 28, 1920, he received a patient at his home. Who this patient was and what he was there for were not known, but not long after the two of them went into his office, Dr. Brown was shot four times and died. The assailant then ran out of the house. He was seen by Dr. Brown's house guest, Dr. Julian Dabney Jackson, founder of the Norfolk Community Hospital in Virginia. Dr. Jackson not only spotted the attacker on his way out, but was the one who admitted him into the house in the first place. Nevertheless, not being a local, he didn't recognize the shooter and was only able to give a very basic description. Light brown skin, 24 or 25 years old, about 135 pounds, wore a dark brown suit. 
Besides the 45 caliber revolver found on the floor near Dr. Brown's body, that was all authorities had to go on. Even with a $1,000 reward placed by Dr. Brown's family, the case went cold. Then, in April of 1921, six months after the slaying, the cops caught a break. James Alfonso Fry was caught forging a false signature on a government compensation check. Upon questioning, Fry started freely confessing to other, more serious crimes. First, he acknowledged that he had held up an Indiana salesman whose taxi had broken down, taking his watch and diamond ring. For some reason, this confession then led the investigators to ask about the murder of Dr. Brown. If the police are to be believed, Fry copped to the killing, too, and gave a detailed account of how it transpired. The report filed says, The prisoner told Inspector Grant and the detectives that he went to the physician's office for a prescription. He had only one dollar, he said, and the physician said two dollars was his price. Dr. Brown, he said, declined to accept his pistol as collateral for the extra dollar. Trouble followed, and the physician, he declared, knocked him down, having followed him from the office to the hallway. It was when he was down, he stated, that he fired four or five shots, one shot being when Dr. Julian Jackson appeared on the scene. Fry's confession was clear, thorough, and accurate, peppered with details only someone familiar with the crime could have known. He named the caliber and type of gun recovered. He fit Dr. Jackson's description, vague as it was. Yet, when Fry's public defenders met him in prison, he told them he was innocent. He had nothing to do with the murder, he said. But then, how'd he make the confession? According to Fry, he had been fed the facts of the case by one of the officers who was questioning him, Detective Sergeant Paul Jones. Again, according to Fry, Jones had made a deal with him. The detective had explained that they had Fry dead to rights on the robbery, since he had the watch and ring on him. But if he confessed to the murder of Dr. Brown, they'd drop the robbery charge. And since he hadn't killed the doctor, he had nothing to fear. He'd be found not guilty soon enough. In the meantime, there was the $1,000 reward offered by Dr. Brown's family, which Jones would claim and then split with Fry once his name was cleared. The police couldn't tie Fry to the recovered gun beyond his statement, and Dr. Jackson couldn't positively identify him beyond the general description. There were a couple of fingerprints found on the brick outside the house, but they didn't belong to James Fry and as likely as not had nothing to do with anything. Fry offered an alibi, a woman named Essie Watson, whom he said he was with the night of the killing, but either she failed to corroborate the story or else failed to materialize at all. The confession was the whole and entire case. Fry's lawyers tried to get it thrown out on the grounds that he didn't know his rights when he gave it, but the judge overruled the request. Things were not looking too good for James Fry. Once someone has admitted to killing a person, it is pretty hard to walk that back for a jury. We tend to believe that if someone tells two contradicting stories about themselves, the one that's worse is the truth. And it's worth saying that when Fry made the confession, he was in the presence of at least three other officers in addition to Detective Sergeant Jones, as well as a stenographer. All of them say the statement was given voluntarily without either enticement or threat and that he volunteered all details without prompting. The modern-day examination of Fry's case that brought his story back into the limelight was done by Professor James E. Stars of George Washington University. Stars concludes very firmly that Fry most definitely did the deed. But me? Ah, uh, I'm a lot more skeptical. 
Fry said he thought that the murder was part of a blackmail plot gone awry, which feels like a real out-of-left-field conclusion, except that, as it turns out, a few months before he was killed, Dr. Brown had gotten a demand letter, threatening his life if he refused to pay a ransom. When he found the letter, Dr. Brown had contacted the police, and a DC detective had left a bag of money at Union Station, as the letter instructed. But nobody had ever shown up to collect it, and nothing more was heard about it after that. If you ask me, the sequence of events leading up to Fry's confession, they ring suspicious, in a very particular false confession-y kind of way. James A. Fry is initially arrested for forging a signature. Within a few hours, they've got him on robbery, and then not much later, he's just singing like a canary about murdering a prominent physician in cold blood? It's weird. It has a certain smell about it. Like, a detective saw an easily manipulated stooge to lay some fat collars on. Then there's the confession itself. Let's take it beat by beat. Fry goes to Dr. Brown's house, late in the evening, to fill a prescription. The doc says, that'll be two bucks, to which Fry responds, shucks, I've only got a single, but here's the loaded gun I brought with me like you do. Could you take that as collateral? Dr. Brown, seeing the loaded gun, says, no way, it's money or nothing, bud. Then, Fry leaves the office, but Dr. Brown follows the armed man into the hall and pushes him to the ground, at which point Fry shoots. This is, I think it's fair to say, a bizarre chain of events. Why'd Fry bring a gun to get a prescription filled? Why didn't Dr. Brown sense any peril about that? Why did he assault an armed man who was walking away from him? It sounds pretty far-fetched to me, and every dubious chink in the chain serves the same purpose mitigating Fry's culpability, like how the good cop might extract a confession by giving the suspect an out that made him less the bad guy. Maybe you weren't there to rob him. Maybe you were there for a prescription. Maybe you didn't start the fight. Maybe he did. Maybe you only fired because he pushed you to the ground. Look, I don't know. It's totally possible that James A. Fry killed Dr. Brown in a skirmish over a $2 prescription, or it's possible that he killed him under less forgivable circumstances that his confession was meant to paper over. But from where I'm standing, it's also a distinct and real possibility that Detective Sergeant Paul Jones manipulated him and that James Fry had nothing to do with Dr. Brown's killing. But with the confession admitted into court, how could his lawyers prove it? Enter Dr. William Moulton Marston. There's more to be said about William Moulton Marston than there is even about the Eddystone Lighthouses, so I'm going to attempt to keep myself on somewhat of a short leash here, even though it pains me. At the time of the Fry trial, he was just 30 years old, but already a professor of psychology at DC's American University. He also had an interest in fiction, having written the screenplay to Alice Guy Blanche's film The Thief when he was still an undergrad at Harvard. His psychological theories revolved around dualities, particularly the dualities of the masculine and feminine, and of dominance and submission, things I only mentioned because of what he became best known for later in life, which, if you already know, pretend you don't because it makes this a lot more fun. Back to it. Aside from all the dominant-submission-masculine-feminine stuff, Marston's other area of focus was on testimony. This interest expressed itself broadly in two ways. One, he argued for and demonstrated the unreliability of eyewitness testimony. Two, he worked to determine a mechanical method for objectively testing whether a person was giving true 
or false testimony. In other words, a lie detector. Marston's undergraduate thesis was entitled Systolic Blood Pressure Symptoms of Deception, and it did exactly what it said on the tin. Marston had conducted more than 100 experiments wherein he tested whether subjects were telling the truth or not by taking their blood pressure. This would become one of the um, monographs in the infamous polygraph test. By 1921, Marston was confident in the ability of his blood pressure test to determine truth from lies, and he was eager to find a courtroom to prove it in. According to Marston, the Fry case fell into his lap when Fry's attorneys, who were also students at American University, approached him. The lawyers say Marston and his students came to them. Either way, all parties, and most importantly Fry himself, agreed to the test. He underwent the procedure on June 10th, and Marston determined that Fry was telling the truth. He hadn't killed Dr. Brown, and he had been enticed by Detective Sergeant Jones. Marston wrote that he was surprised by Fry's honesty. He expected him to be guilty. But the science doesn't lie. Later down the line, Dr. Marston would shill his lie detector to sell razor blades and breakfast cereals, and that entrepreneurial spirit was well on display when Fry's defense began their case on June 19th. Marston invited a crowd of scientists and reporters ready for some big, bold publicity for his lie detector. Fry's legal team had only two witnesses, Fry himself and Marston. Fry went first and reiterated his claim that Detective Jones had offered to split the reward with him if he confessed. There was a bunch more arguing between the judge, prosecution, and defense over the applicability of his confession, which was pretty unceremoniously offered into the record, and then it was time for Dr. Marston. If your honor please, at this time I had intended to offer in evidence the testimony of Dr. William M. Marston as an expert in deception. His testimony on what? Testimony as to the truth or falsity of certain statements of the defendant which were made at a particular time. Made at what time? The 10th of June of this year. We are not concerned with the truth or falsity of the 10th of June. He has been testifying on the 19th and 20th of July, and that is the only thing we are interested in. There has been a great amount of testimony offered, Your Honor, as to what was said by Fry at various times both prior to and since his arrest. The testimony which is offered is not offered as evidence of what Fry did say. It is not offered for its effect upon the jury in that way, but is offered as the opinion of an expert as to whether what he did say was the truth or not. I submit that that is competent. Oh, yes, I've got lines. Uh, If your honor, please... (laughs) You do not need to argue it. If you object to it, I will sustain the objection. I do not want to object, but I think that properly to make the offer, the witness ought to be put on the stand and sworn and asked questions. I do not think they need to go through that. They offer to show that somebody, as an expert in veracity, has made up his mind that Fry, on the 10th day of June, either told the truth or did not tell it. Of course, I do not know what the witness would say, but as I say, the witness was here on the stand and it is for the jury to determine whether or not the 19th and 20th of July he was telling the truth. Very well, Your Honor. That is very true, Your Honor. But as expert testimony, is not this proper as competent evidence to go before the jury to ascertain what the doctor's opinion is at this time? It is not a question of opinion. It is a question of fact. Subject to the opinion of an expert, though, Your Honor. 
Oh. Well, we get to be more or less experts ourselves, and so do the jury upon the question of whether anybody is telling the truth or not. That is what the jury is for. Fry's attorney, Mattingly, and Judge McCoy went back and forth on this for quite a while, and rather than go through each note, it's enough for us to play the melody. This is the moment at which the court is faced with filling in its dotted lines. We know the court can admit an expert's testimony when the matter is beyond the powers of the judge or jury to commonly assess. That was the case with Folks v. Chad and with People v. Jennings and his fingerprints. At issue in Fry is perhaps the most important thing a jury has to determine, and the thing which they are least prepared to do. Judge whether someone is lying. In almost every matter to fall before a court, this is the central problem. One side says one thing, the other says the other, and both of them can't be right. And we commonly have to leave it up to the jury to say which one is fibbing. But how should they know? There's a lot of research out there about our ability to catch a lie, and it will not fill you with a sense of optimism. In experiments, human beings do approximately as good a job determining lies as a coin flip. No better. If Marston's systolic blood pressure test worked, it would easily be the single most important forensic tool ever devised. But that is one big honking if. Marston claimed a very high level of reliability in his testing, a much higher level of reliability than any credible testing has found for any variety of lie detectors since then. In 1998, the Supreme Court decided in United States v. Sheffer that, quote, there is simply no consensus that polygraph evidence is reliable. The scientific field studies suggest the accuracy rate of the control question technique polygraph is little better than could be attained by the toss of a coin. The Marston test and the polygraph that descended from it they don't measure lies. They measure arousal. The theory is that these two align, that being deceptive causes arousal. That's not a bad theory, but it fails to adequately recall that while lying may cause your blood pressure to rise or your breathing rate to increase or your pulse to quicken, there are plenty of other things that do the same. Anxiety, anger, fear, depression, smoking, withdrawal. Hell, the most perfect deceptive reading from a polygraph would probably come not from lying, but from low blood sugar. Polygraphs are bullshit. They should never be admissible in court, and if you are ever asked by police to take one, you should flatly fucking decline. But that's not what we're here to talk about. Nobody in the D.C. courtroom in 1923 knew about lie detectors one way or the other, including William Marston, even though he thought otherwise. Yet, how was the court to know? Justice McCoy ruled against Marston's testimony, and that was the right decision, just like Lord Mansfield's decision to allow Smeaton's. But, also like Mansfield's decision, it was reached the wrong way. There has to be a beginning to everything. We had the same opposition that Your Honor is railing to this test in the instance of the fingerprint system of identification. That was fought for years and years. But as soon as enough of them were developed photographically so that it could be seen that like the leaves on the trees, the fingerprints of no two different individuals were alike, then of course the court said, all right, let us go ahead. And as soon as it is demonstrated that there is an infallible instrument for ascertaining whether a person is speaking the truth or not, and the instances are so multiplied that there cannot be any mistake about the matter, 
then I presume that some court will begin by allowing the testimony. There you go. Marston was turned away. Fry was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. He was paroled on June 17, 1939, just about a year before William Moulton Marston made his most enduring contribution to American culture. The self-styled inventor of the lie detector, obsessed with dominance and submission, not just in his professional work, but in his personal life, and driven by a rather problematic view of feminine virtue and masculine villainy, created the first female superhero, who tied up bad guys with a magical lasso that made them tell the truth. Wonder Woman. He's enough to make you believe in Freud. But my God, is that a longer story. Justice McCoy's stance on Marston's test left the same Mack truck-sized hole as the other cases we've looked at. Sometimes the court needs scientific experts, but only if the science is reliable. Well, who then decides what that means? The case was appealed, on the grounds that Justice McCoy had improperly denied Marston's testimony. And in their appeal, Fry's attorneys said, The rule is that the opinions of experts or skilled witnesses are admissible in evidence in those cases in which the matter of inquiry is such that inexperienced persons are unlikely to prove capable of forming a correct judgment upon it. For the reasons that the subject matter so far partakes of a science, art, or trade as to require a previous habit or experience or study in it in order to acquire a knowledge of it. When the question involved does not lie within the range of common experience or common knowledge, but requires special experience or special knowledge, then the opinions of witnesses skilled in that particular science, art, or trade to which the question relates are admissible in evidence. In their decision, affirming McCoy's judgment, the D.C. Circuit Court responded, Just when a scientific principle or discovery crosses the line between the experimental and demonstrable stages is difficult to define. Somewhere in this twilight zone, the evidential force of the principle must be recognized. And while courts will go a long way in admitting expert testimony deduced from a well-recognized scientific principle or discovery, the thing from which the deduction is made must be sufficiently established to have gained general acceptance in the particular field in which it belongs. That short paragraph became the bedrock for all expert witness testimony in the United States up until 1993, when a set of cases referred to collectively as the Daubert Trilogy went before the Supreme Court. Today, the so-called Fry Standard is still used by a few states, including California and Illinois. In federal courts and most other states, Daubert is the law of the land. But Daubert isn't so much better than Fry that it's worth talking about here. And Fry is... it's a terrible standard. The first flaw in the Fry standard, and this is somewhat solved in Daubert, is that it makes it very hard to introduce new scientific ideas into court. Because that idea must be, as already quoted, sufficiently established to have gained general acceptance in the particular field in which it belongs. The question of whether a piece of science is admissible isn't primarily about the science itself, but its popularity. And what if a practice had gained general acceptance in its particular field because its particular field is bullshit? Blood spatter, 
ballistics, fiber analysis, bullet lead composition, voice printing, bite mark analysis, arson investigation, hell, even fingerprints. What if they're all generally accepted in their fields, not because they're proven and reliable practices, but because the practices and the fields are one and the same? Both Fry and Daubert standards make judges the ultimate gatekeepers, the people who get to say whether the science is sciency enough. And judges just plain aren't good at that. I mean, why should they be? Judges work in law, not science. And while both purport to be dedicated to pursuing surety, if not truth, they go about it in incredibly different ways. Science is collaborative, based on research, replicability, peer review, and revision. Law? It just doesn't work like that at all. It's adversarial. And its incentives cut directly against admitting mistakes, changing methods, and accepting critiques from rivals. More often than not, forensic science is more in line with the values of law. Because the experts don't have the incentives to disagree, replicate, and revise that other scientists do, well, they don't disagree, replicate, or revise. So plenty of objectionably questionable conclusions go unquestioned and a lot of innocent people end up in prison. Or, we're still in death chambers. That's next time on Part 3. Music for today's episode by Lee Rosevere, Blue Dot Sessions, The Well-Tempered Clavier, and Johann Sebastian Bach. Batch? Bachi? Uh, whatever. Voice talent by... Lawrence Grimm. I'm Andrew Bailing. If you'd like to support the making of this show, go to patreon.com slash theconstant to sign up or visit constantpodcast.com to find all our episodes, our social media presences, and our shop where you can buy our funky branded merchandise. And tell a friend. We're a part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, home to Rumble Strip, which The Atlantic magazine named the best podcast of 2020. The Atlantic says it's the best. I don't need to add to that pitch. The Atlantic, for Christ's sake. I'll save the trenchant tags for part three. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant.